Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 316 of X-Lapsed, uh, where, uh, I guess for the uh, wrestling fans among us, I can say, uh, X-Lapsed 316 says uh, we're going to wrap up the Reign of X today. We're going to end the uh, the Reign of X era with the final issue of, um, of Inferno. The entire Jonathan Hickman brainchild is uh, going to come to an end today, or at least uh, a facet of it. I'm... You know, not to put the cart before the horse here, because we do have a lot to talk about. Um, I do want to preface uh, by saying that I enjoyed reading this issue, and I enjoyed reading this miniseries. I feel like it's been uh, the most on task that we've been in quite a while. But even with all that said, um, I can't really ignore uh, some of the more nonsensical things or the things that feel like last-minute uh, changes. Um, it's odd, you know, we've been at this, uh, for about two and a half years now, almost three years, going into, where are we? We're in February, so, yeah, about two and a half years we've been doing this, uh, post-Hoxpox era, or this Hoxpox era, I should say, and it's kind of disheartening that the entire endeavor could be summed up in, uh, two words, now that we're at the, you know, other end of the Hickman run, and those two words are, plans change. This story, and by extension, this era, is kind of a victim of its own success. And, and we will talk more about that on the other end of the synopsis here, but uh, I suppose without further ado, let's get into it, because we do have quite a bit to talk about. Today we're talking about Inferno, Volume 2, Number 4, had a March 2022 cover date. The story is called The Death of Mora X, written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Valerio Shidi and Stefano Caselli. Colors David Curiel, letters VCs Josebino, designs Tom Muller. Edits Amaro Whitesvolsky, cover price six bucks, and this one went on sale January 5th of 2022. And before we hit the ground running here, just one more apology that uh, the chair I'm sitting in is squeaky as hell. Um, it's probably because it's supporting my fidgety ass and I move around a whole lot. I talk with my body is kind of the thing here. It's uh, Even right now, my hands are going everywhere. So it kind of makes me shift in the chair, and uh, shifting leads to squeaking, and uh, I've yet to pick up a can of WD-40. So any squeaking is um, unintentional, and I apologize for it if it takes uh, away anything from the enjoyment of, uh, or uh, does anybody enjoy this? I don't know. Let's get into it. We open with a mostly blank quote page, and it's from Omega Sentinel, and uh, she's saying, this is how little you matter. And hey, it's it's almost like they're talking directly to us. I kid, I kid. Uh, double page spread of roll call and cred. Our characters include, but are not limited to, Professor X, Magneto, Mora X, Mystique, Destiny, Cypher, Emma Frost, Warlock, Krakoa, Omega Sentinel, and Nimrod. Now we open in Terra Verde, where Xavier and Eric find themselves surrounded by gaggles of Orcuses, as well as Nimrod and Karima What's-Her-Face. Now, if you recall, Professor X and Magneto were lured here via the colony tracker in Mora's arm. Mystique left it, uh, the arm that is, here as a trap, and now that trap is sprung. And, well, uh, Nimrod and Karima choose right this very moment to reveal their true allegiances to nobody but themselves. They turn on the human rentamercs from Orcus, slaughtering them all. Now, you see, Nimrod and Karima are part of that third side of this war triangle. They are, of course, post-human. Not exactly sure why they wasted all the humans before they could take out Chuck and Eric for them, but, uh, what are you gonna do? I guess they'd rather pontificate for half the issue than watch a bunch of randos get tossed around by Magneto. And hey, if that's the case, I agree. I'd rather see them talk than... 
Anyway, our heroes are kind of shocked by this turn of events. Uh, Karima reveals here that they hate humans just as much as they hate mutants. And she tells Xavier that uh, this is his nightmare. But then again, can it really be a nightmare if it's all real? And this is a really neat callback to Mora telling him that, uh, you know, his dream can't be a dream if it's actually real. So a really neat callback, bringing everything together. I like that a lot. From here, we get a few pages of struggle, and it's clear to see that our heroes are pretty overmatched here. Now, Nimrod goes to kill Xavier. However, he's torn apart, presumably by Magneto, before he can do so. The art here is a little bit unclear. Now, we do have Chuck, but then his eyes start glowing blue with, like, an odd electricity, and then Nimrod's torn to pieces. From here, we shift scenes back to Krakoa, where Mystique and Destiny have Mora held captive in the No Place. And we can see here that she is, in fact, missing an arm. Mora, that is. Uh, she tries to impress upon her captors that it probably wouldn't be the wisest play to kill her. Destiny knows all about what she's getting at, in that should Mora perish, you know, the whole multiverse will reset. And can I just say how much I hate the word how the word, like, multiverse is being thrown around in Marvel books so willy-nilly. I mean, to me, that's a DC thing. And sure, I understand that there are endless universes in, in Marvel, but, like, the reliance on, like, multiverse, it feels like kind of a crutch to me at this point. Uh, maybe it's just me. Anyway, Mora pleads with Mystique and Destiny to, uh, you know, maybe be reasonable here. To which, Raven says, well, F you anyway, and uh, pulls the trigger. What follows are two pages of blank panels, then a two-page spread featuring the title of our issue, The Death of Mora X. So, four pages of nothing in this, uh, you know, six or seven dollar book. Well, I guess every page, whether it has anything on it or not, costs the same on Marvel Unlimited or in a trade collection, so what does it matter? So, you might be asking, what in the hell just happened? Well, to answer that, we got ahead into Flashback Land. Now, you remember when Raven and Irene met with Emma Frost last issue? Well, if you do, you probably also remember that the contents of that conversation were uh, kept kind of nebulous. Until now. You see, it's here where Emma makes a startling revelation. Now, you know how she and Xavier have somewhat similar powers, yeah? Well, the difference between them is that uh, while Xavier sees strengths when he's invading someone's mind, uh, Emma sees weaknesses or flaws. And when she was inside Mora's mind an issue or two ago, she found one particular weakness, and it was mostly thanks to Destiny herself. Now, you remember how back during Mora's third life, how Destiny and Mystique had her killed? Of course you do. They actually replayed that entire scene a couple of issues ago in Inferno. And now we're about to find out why. If you recall, Destiny threatened to kill Mora before her mutant powers manifested, uh, which would stop her from doing her hoodoo, yes? Well, if they can make it so Mora's not a mutant anymore, then they can kill her without consequence. Well, relative to the multiverse, of course. And so, Emma petitioned Forge to whip up a power nullifier, a way to make Mora an ordinary, powerless human. Now, Forge, of course, is an old hand at this thing. He created that neutralizer, which, for a time, took away Storm's powers. Circa... Uh, a little while before Uncanny 201. <laughs> and I can't remember which exact issue off the top of my head, but it was definitely before 201 where she fought Cyclops. Because, hey, uh, you may have never heard this before, but um, I hear tell that Storm might be just as dangerous without her powers. You heard it here first. Anyway, so Forge created this nullifier gun, which might be what Call Me Kate was referencing over in the opening pages of Marauders number 27 that we talked about last episode. 
If you recall, or if you listened, she mentioned that Forge was working on something for the Quiet Council, and maybe that thing was this uh, neutralizer gun. We close out this scene with Emma handing it over to Mystique. Then, we get a montage of events to kind of set the stage. It shows us how Mystique shapeshifted into various folks to put all the pieces into place. Now, we see her as Sage in order to use the Krakoan databases. This is all uh, mostly stuff that we've seen over the course of the past few issues that I very likely complained was too confusing to follow. Now, it's going to mostly make sense. <laughs> so, uh, yes, we see her as Sage using the, uh, the computer databases on Krakoa. We then see her as an Orcus thug kidnapping Mora in Paris. Then, still as an Orcus thug, she leads Mora into the base. Then, she turns on Orcus. She gasses them all while keeping Mora safe in a gas mask. This bit is new, to, to us anyway. Uh, the gassed Orcuses turn on one another. And then, Mystique as an Orcus calls into Nimrod and Karima to inform them of a mutant attack. Then, Mora is strapped to a chair and Mystique is wielding a very sharp-looking knife. And then we get to Now-ish, as our baddies and a one-armed Mora return to the no-place. From here, we get a mostly blank quote page, only to remind us that uh, Mystique is everywhere, man. She goes everywhere, man. She's everywhere, man. Um, then, we're back to the right now, and apparently, uh, Mystique has had a chance to get a short haircut between panels. Uh, of course, this is when we change artists. It's the halfway point. Um, I mean, maybe I'm just an asshole who gets stuck on stuff like this, but... The fact that this is an oversized issue which would require multiple artists, that likely wasn't a surprise to anyone, right? So couldn't we have all gotten on the same page in as far as what everybody's actually supposed to look like? I mean, this isn't rocket surgery. Uh, character style sheets, do they, do they just not exist anymore? Do we just not care? Are we too cool for that because it's too comic booky? Maybe I'm just an asshole. I don't know. Anyway, here, Mystique and Destiny confront Mora. Raven talks about how she's been toyed with by Eric and Xavier since this whole thing started, and it's only now that she knows why. And uh, for that explanation, let's hop back to Mora's third life again, yes? At the end of that one, she created the cure for mutantum. Now, before Pyro immolated her, Destiny made that threat. You know, if she were to get a whiff of Mora trying to create her mutant cure ever again, well, then she would murder her before her powers manifested. And, well, I hope you all got your umbrellas ready, because, uh... Well, shoes are about to drop. Now, Mora didn't want Destiny off the board simply because of her precogniz. She needed her gun because, well, her plan never changed. Mora X's big plan is still to wipe out the mutant gene. Of course, uh, you know, Mora's seen this story play out way too many times already, and she's also seen that the ending never changes, at least not for the mutants. You see, sometimes humanity can beat back the machines... Other times, the machines pull through. The only constant here is that the mutants lose every time out. And so, if the mutants were just humans, I guess they'd at least have a 50-50 chance of survival, which I guess is better than none, right? Uh, from here, we hop back to Terra Verde, where over the course of nearly a dozen pages, Karima and the reassembled Nimrod take out Xavier and Magneto. But first, they attempt to uh, come to an arrangement with them, a temporary truce of sorts. Now, you see, our heroes are pretty frazzled right now. And fearing that Mora is seconds away from being killed, thus restarting or just plain ending the universe, well, they're kind of amiable to making a deal with their enemies. Now, while Nimrod has Chuck up in a chokehold, Karima talks about how the machines were always intended to be nothing more than tools. And it was only when they became too advanced or self-aware that humans and mutants alike would try to stifle them. Which, yeah, I guess she has a point, right? 
Uh, now, Magneto asked that Xavier be let go so that he and Nimrod could finish this. Because Eric knows even if he dies today, at least Xavier will keep his memories and hopefully save Mora before everything goes kaput. Nimrod's like, you know what? You got a deal, so long as Karima can leave too. Now, Magneto kind of hems and haws, but ultimately agrees, seeing as that's their only chance here. And uh, Nimrod, uh, well, he snaps Xavier's neck anyway, so oops. Uh, I guess the lesson we can take from this is uh, never trust a machine that was solely built to hunt you down and kill you. Anyway, Magneto begins to go on a rampage, and I say begins because uh, just a moment into it, his powers are shut off. And, well, it's uh, pretty academic from here. Next, we pop back to the No Place, where the depowered and demutanted Mora is just about to be killed. When, just before Raven can finish the job, uh, our friend Doug Ramsey pops his head in to say, Nuh-uh. Now, he's uh, drawn here to look like a real, like, aloof badass. He's, like, leaning against the wall, which is a little annoying since... You know, he's not. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's kind of the current year X-Rider thing. you got to prove that the useless kid is actually the strongest of them all, but uh, I digress. Anyway, he's here to drop some truths, in that uh, should Mystique and Destiny kill the newly minted human Mora, well, they'd be breaking Krakoa's number one law, kill no man, and thus they'd be tossed into Sabretooth's studio apartment to hang out with him, Toad, Nanny, and Orphan Maker. Now, in case you haven't been following along, a little bit of information here. Mora's No Place is a hidden node on Krakoa that even the, the living island itself isn't aware of. Doug Ramsey, however, is aware of it due to he and Warlock's connection to the inner workings of the place. It was recently revealed in, you know, the, the very pages of this miniseries that um, Doug, he's known that uh, Mora's been alive and the fact that Mora's a mutant ever since the get-go. So the gimmick here is Mystique and Destiny figured you kill Mora in the No Place, a place that really nobody knows about except for, you know, Charles, Eric, and the woman who gave them the gun. <laughs> you know, it would probably go unnoticed. Which, if not for Doug and what he knows, it probably would have. So anyway, Doug says, you know, you can't do this. Even though he's not the biggest Mora fan, and he actually agrees with Mystique that she's a liability, they still can't kill her. To which Raven's all, oh yeah, who's going to stop me? <laughs> you and what army? And, well, Doug reveals his crew of, uh, you know, himself, of course, Warlock, Bay the Blood Moon, and uh, Krakoa. So, whoops. <laughs> Raven ain't shook, though. She's prepared to throw down until Irene drops some truths of her own. Of course, we know Destiny can see the future, all sorts of futures. So she kind of knows all the options presented at these crossroads and how none of them really look all that great. Now, the best of the bad situations uh, actually necessitates them letting Mora go. Then, at the very least, they can consolidate power in the Quiet Council and not be separated, because all other possibilities would wind up in their deaths, or at the very least, their separation. And so Mystique decides to choose her love for destiny over her thirst for revenge, which makes total sense, because everything she's done to this point has been to be reunited with destiny, so... To throw that all away now would be, well, very foolish, wouldn't it? Now, Doug has Warlock give Mora a techno-organic arm to replace the one she lost, and she assumes that it'll be a way to track her, to which Doug makes it perfectly clear that he could not give a solitary rat's ass where she goes, so long as she does, in fact, go. He just figures that she may as well have two hands wherever the hell she winds up. He then tells her that she's got one last trip through a Krakoan gateway before she's, you know, Dunsky, she's banned. And uh, as she goes to step through, she turns and asks if they want to wish her luck. 
And Doug's like, nah, I'm good. Just get the F out. Warlock calls her a self-not-friend in order to murder any subtlety this scene might have had otherwise. Anyway, uh, Mora bugs out. From here, we go back to the opening scene of this series in which Xavier and Magneto are gold-balled by Emma. Hickman gets in one last, to me, my X-Men, just to kick me in the nuts one final time. And Emma informs them that uh, while they were gone, she shared the secret of Mora X with the rest of the Quiet Council. They, Quiet Council, in turn came to an agreement that uh, the secret should probably stay with them. So the Krakoan public, they don't need to know. And uh, this whole Mora thing will be something of a Krakoan-era original sin that they're all going to have to share the burden of. From here, we hop to our epilogue, where the Quiet Council is about to assemble, and so we have ourselves a roll call, another roll call. We've got the nation's founders being represented by Professor X and Magneto, the always faithful being represented as Nightcrawler and Storm. The trustworthy is... Colossus? Hmm. You know, besides all those times, including right this very second where he couldn't be trusted. I'm, I'm, sure the, <laughs> I'm sure the irony is intentional. At least I hope it is. We got the innocent children in Doug Ramsey. The broken keeper, Emma Frost. The heroes, call me Kate. The villain, Sebastian Shaw. The Killers, Destiny and Mystique, The Liars, Mr. Sinister, and finally, The True Believers in Exodus. The Council assembles, and we are out of here. Our hype page here promotes Immortal X-Men, which looks like it'll be our de facto Quiet Council book, and if you ask me, arguably the flagship of the Destiny of X season, which we will be kicking off next episode when we take a look at the X-Lives of Wolverine number one. We're finally there. We're finally there, so looking forward to that. But before we can ring in the new, we gotta kind of draw a line under the old. So um, let's talk about this one. And I, my notes here are very strange because uh, I planned on going like beat for beat. You know, like uh, there's a lot to talk about here for sure. And I was gonna go scene by scene and kind of just pull things out that I wanted to discuss. And uh, I don't think it's gonna work that way. I actually only made it through the first scene where I was, you know, pulling little bits and bits and pieces out. Uh, I talked about the opening battle and how it actually had a semblance of stakes, even in spite of the fact that we do have the resurrection protocols, and also the fact that we opened this very series with Xavier and Magneto being gold balled by Emma Frost. So we we knew it was coming, but there were stakes here. There was tension um, in that if Chuck and Eric both died there. Well, they would come back without their memories of these last few moments. Um, they won't know about uh, post-humanity being quite so present and also quite so aggressive. And they'd probably, or possibly, also lose their tail on Mora, or Mora could have been killed as a mutant, and uh, everything could have started all over again. So there were actual stakes here, which I appreciated. But as we worked our way through, it felt like that scene was like the only one that may not have changed from from concept to printed page. Because, and again, my, my normal preface of I have absolutely no insider knowledge, nobody talks to me about anything, people generally don't acknowledge my existence, so I don't know anything, I, anything more than anybody else, right? I probably know less. But first blush to me, this feels very much in line with what's been being built to since day one. This confrontation with post-humanity, the revelation that they are there, they are ready to fight, and um, they have no allegiance to either side. You know, they're looking to create chaos and just 
in the parlance of uh, Powers of X, Ascend. That, to me, if I were a betting man, which of course I'm not, feels the most pure and true to uh, all of the high concepts that were thrown our way during Hoxbox. This feels real. This feels un- unchanged, uh, unfiltered. This feels like the direction this entire thing was meant to go. But then we read on, and uh, rather than things getting kind of tied up neatly with a bow, um, our head of X is forced to facilitate future stories, which he's not going to be a part of. I'm sure... I can't say I'm sure, because again, I know nothing. But uh, I don't think this was the original vision for this story. And it... Uh, it makes the reveals here and the uh, ultimate ending come across as rather underwhelming, at least to me. And and again, I enjoyed reading this. I enjoyed reading this entire miniseries. I was literally on the edge of my seat reading it. I, I couldn't wait to turn the page. But at the end of the day, it feels like there were uh, maybe a few too many fingerprints on this one uh, that kind of diverted from the original vision. And uh, it was uh, the opposite of addition by subtraction. It was subtraction by addition. <laughs> I think it, it might be the best way I can describe it here, which is probably the stupidest way to describe it, but uh, yeah, here we are. What's worse, it uh, makes so much of what we've read over the past two and a half years feel like it was for nothing. You know, um, with the... Again, I'm guessing there were a lot of changes toward the end of this run, which made potentially salient story beats turn into plot holes, waiting to be revisited if, in fact, they're ever going to be revisited. And we keep stacking those up, and it becomes, you know, the old uh, Dagwood sandwich, where we can no longer, you know, enjoy one certain flavor. All of a sudden, we're just overwhelmed with a bombardment of different flavors that sometimes contradict, sometimes cancel out. It's just a... I don't know, it's kind of a disaster. And and that's not an indictment on Hickman or, or Duggan or Percy or anybody else involved in the creative process here. Like I said at the start, this whole era feels like it's a victim of its own success. It's nothing catastrophic like the Clone Saga in the 90s, which was also a victim of its own success and uh, to the point where marketing and editorial would not let the damn thing end. But um, And I don't even want to say it's headed in that direction, but certainly this feels like it's being forced as being the, you know, the status quo. Our head of X had a story he wanted to tell, and sales were better than expected at the start, so we bloated the line. And more, I mean, you, you can only tell one story in so many books, right? So you got to add to it, and whether or not that contradicts anything that comes before it or is going to come after, whether or not those books are just treading water because they're not allowed to move forward, it's just a, yeah, it's just a Michigas, right? And I mean, this is episode 316 of this show, so there are at least 316 issues of this. Uh, And uh, if we were to look back, very few of them really play into the ultimate and overall uh, vision that was intended here. It feels like a lot of them were just there to, you know, wrangle a few more bucks out of us. And I mean, of course, Marvel's a business, and uh, the X-Men are an intellectual property, so that is the ultimate goal. So (laughs) in that regard... I guess it's a win. But when you're when the focal point of your entire line is a solitary vision and uh and so much of the set dressing either, you know, uh diverts uh, or just contradicts that vision, it's 
and this will sound silly, precious, and uh, naive, but it takes the art out of it. You know, it's it becomes less of a creative endeavor and more of a commercial one, which, again, it's Marvel. <laughs> it's going to be a commercial thing at the end of the day. So it's probably best to uh, check our Pollyanna-ishness at the door, right? But let's talk about... Let's talk about the vision here. Let's talk about the vision and uh, what we got as a result here. Um, now, we get the big reveal here, and I think a lot of us saw this coming. Um, you know, so much of uh, Maura's scenes have been predicated on her looking at old journals and looking for cures. And um, I think the... I'd have to go back and listen, because I, I talk an awful lot, in case you haven't noticed. So I sometimes forget what I've said. And I think one of the theories I made was that... Mora was, in fact, looking for a cure, but she was only looking for a cure in order to cure herself so that she could die and not reset the universe. Like, Life 10 was the perfect life. Life 10, everything that they'd set up with Krakoa, everything that we've found out since House of X number 1, that was the winning plan. And so in order to protect and save mutants going forward, Mora would create this, uh, this cure, give it to herself... So that she can die, not reset anything The mutants finally win Was that the original plan? I doubt it I think the uh, I think Mora trying to cure mutantum Was always part of the endgame I, I do think it was going to be I think it was going to be introduced And actually be the status quo for a minute Like I think we were actually going to have to Process it and deal with it in the books Rather than have it introduced And then wiped out in the very same issue I think this is definitely a sign of truncation. Again, I'm, I could be wrong. Probably am. But I, I, my feeling is that this was going to be... You know how we're going into our cliffhangers and our season finales. I think that was going to be a season finale. I, again, could be wrong. Don't know. But even if that was the case, it sort of kind of begs a few questions. Like, if Mora's plan all along was to snuff out the mutant gene before it manifests, then... What's the point of Krakoa? Like, why do we need a mutant nation for any of that? Unless, of course, the mutant magic meds were the cure. But, I mean, without us being told that explicitly, we would have to squint very hard. that uh, So hard, in fact, that our faces might actually stick like that <laughs> in order to uh, make that work. And, you know, allow me to be a hypocrite here for a minute, or for another minute, I suppose. Um, I've long... <laughs> I've long expressed my distaste for the info pages in this in these books, right? I feel like they're overused. They are they are useful in some situations and they are neat in some situations, but they uh, can be abused. We didn't get any in this book. <laughs> this one could have used an info page or two. We got a couple of the blank quote pages, mostly blank quote pages, but no actual like exposition dump info page, which maybe that's a sign that things changed, maybe that's a sign that uh, they were I don't know, just not doing them this time. Who knows? I really couldn't say. Maybe this is a story that's going to be reliant on fan theories and headcanon and just serve as something we can debate and discuss. And if that's the case, sure. We're there for it because that's what we're doing right now and that's what we'll continue to do as we move forward. But um, it's uh, until we get something actually put on paper, it's, you know, nothing is going to be true, right? It's just going to be us fake-ass analysts trying to fake-ass analyze and, and look like we're the uh, smartest person in a room. But um, anyway, let's let's move on. Let's move on. Okay, so Moore is trying to wipe out mutants, right? Before the gene even manifests in youngsters here. 
why in the hell would she be cool bringing in tens, hundreds of thousands of Iraqi mutants? And what part of her grand plan is served by the colonization of friggin' Mars? Plans change, I guess. And uh, at the risk of repeating myself, which you know I hate to do, uh, I think I mentioned in either Inferno 1 or 2, whichever one had Destiny come back to life here, if the entire thing here, this entire thing hinged on a threat made by Destiny in Mora's third life, right? That's the whole thing here. With everything we know right now, Destiny is the big no-no because of the threat she made to Mora in wiping her out before her powers manifest. If that is the case, why in all hells was Destiny's Cerebro backup kept? Like, shouldn't that have been the very first thing that Mora did? Dump that file? You know, don't copy that floppy? Let's get rid of any, any remnant of Destiny. Like, what's the point of keeping Mystique on the hook for so long? Like, there was nobody who could have done what Mystique did? We've got a quarter of a million mutants on that island. There's no one who could do what Mystique does? I really don't know. I'm probably thinking way too hard. Um, let's, uh, let's go back, uh, all the way back to House of X number two. Uh, now, if Mora truly opened her mind to Xavier, would he know her ultimate plan? Did he know her ultimate plan? Was he cool with it? I mean, that doesn't seem right, does it? And let's let's play uh, devil's advocate. Let's play it out here. And let's say even if that was the case, right? Everybody's on the people who know are actually on board with this plan. It, it probably wasn't the case. She probably shielded that part of her mind. But uh, but let's say they were trying to take out the next generation of mutants. Right? Well, taking out the next generation of mutants is kind of a moot point if the current generation of mutants is immortal via the resurrection protocols, right? Like, am I just an idiot? Don't answer that. Don't answer that. My point is, if mutants, the ones that are around now, are immortal, they'll always be mutants. I mean, this, this whole thing kind of begs a few more questions about Mora's plans as well. How come none of our lives ever had her, I don't know, teaming with a Reed Richards or a Doctor Doom? Like the actual big brains of the Marvel Universe. Instead, she hangs out with Apocalypse and hunts down Trasks? I don't know. I mean, I, I get that if the plan all along wasn't to cure mutantdom. Like, maybe she was just wasting lives in order to see how things play out to see if there was a way the mutants would eventually win. But... I don't know, uh, this revelation here kind of changes the way I look at those scenes in, in as far as uh, their importance and their ultimate goal. Anyway, let me put a pin in all that for now. Hopefully we'll be having further discussions on this moving forward uh, over the next uh, several episodes. Hopefully folks will write in and want to uh, take a deeper look and have a deeper talk on this. But let's go to the ending. Okay, let's play out the ending here. Uh, now, just because Mora is now human... And I'm saying, I'm just saying here, do we know for a fact that she's a human? Like, uh, we'll only know that this this ray or this gun worked if she dies and the universe doesn't, you know, restart. Uh, she's kind of, until then, she's kind of like Schrodinger's mutant, you know? Either she is or she isn't. She's both, she's neither, who knows? Let's say that it did work. Let's say that she is depowered. Do we know for sure that her powers won't ever come back? You know, like Storms did back in the long ago. Now, just because she's not on Krakoa anymore, and maybe not not actually be a mutant herself, does that mean she's going to try, like, stop trying to cure 
Mutantum? You know, is letting her go to Lord knows where seem like a good idea? I mean, I mean, it's a good idea in that it's an open-ended thing that a board writer could pick up again, you know, some years down the road, but narratively speaking, it's insane. It really is. And, and also, I mean, if Mora was a mutant at some point, is there a Cerebro backup of her? Like, so if she were to die, or thought to be dead, could she wind up in the resurrection queue and then we have this problem all over again? I really don't know. Maybe we'll get some answers, maybe we won't. Maybe this will hibernate for quite a while and come back when we least expect it. I guess uh, that'll all remain to be seen, and I, I do hope we discuss this more uh, in, in coming episodes here. I, I'd love to have discussions about this one. This is a very interesting one. It's not perfect. I, I, like I said, I had a great time reading it. I was very excited all the way through, but it did result in a whole slew of things, you know, just jumping out of the book at me to, uh, to question. Um, it also didn't escape one thing that uh, has been one of my problems with with Hickman's scripts ever since we started this and I think he's a uh, I think he's a wonderfully talented writer of course uh, but the scripts feel very sterile and lifeless like there are no personalities uh, given here outside of attempts at snark and badassery um I think had he had a co-writer for this who could make the characters feel like actual people and not just like a pile of traits. This could have been like an all-time classic. And again, that's accepting any changes or abruptness to the story. Uh, now, the concepts, high as they may be, are they're interesting. And again, had a great time reading it. Nonsense or otherwise, I had a good time with it. Uh, but without the characters feeling like fully fleshed out folks, it misses the mark a little bit for me. But that way of telling a story does take advantage of, uh, of Hickman's strengths, in my opinion. If we were to look back over this entire run, his best issues were the ones where stuff happened. You know, it was like we weren't getting, you know, deep dives into someone's psyche. We weren't really getting emotional, uh, emotional meetings between people or explorations of relationships. Even like the Destiny Mystique thing is is presented more as a concept than something that feels as real as it could if that makes any sense. It's like story beats to get us from point A to point B to point C, but I don't know, it just it feels empty. I'm not sure. Now, I am hoping that starting with the book we'll be covering next episode, which is The X-Lives of Wolverine number one, I hope we no longer have a credited head of X, really, uh, so that maybe, like just maybe, the books can actually try telling stories rather than waiting for someone who clearly isn't even all in on their own concepts to tell their story. Like, at the end of the day, if this was the Hickman show, then he should have been maybe earning that Head of X title by participating in the editorial process of every single book that has his name on it. And again, I have no insider knowledge, but it's my bet that that wasn't the case. Um, in fact, I'd argue that his name was only included in the credits of every single book in hopes that people like me would buy every single book. And I mean, it's clear, at least to me, that a lot of the writers here aren't reading any X-Books besides the one that they write. So, really, there needed to be someone to keep everything and everybody on track. And yet here we are, with a half-dozen editors and a head of X, and still nobody taking responsibility to steer the boat. I feel like, ultimately, you know, it bugs me that any and all of the plot holes that we got in this issue, this series, and this era, it can be summed up in those two words. And, of course, those two words are, plans change. 
And honestly, we as readers deserve better. The creators as storytellers deserve better. And uh, moronic analysts who have spent thousands of hours writing and podcasting about this over the past couple of years. Well, maybe maybe people like us get what we deserve. I, I really don't know. But uh, I think I've taken this one as far as I can take it for now. Uh, again, I- I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one. This is a very important book for this run, for this show, for this era. Uh, I would love to hear your thoughts. If you agree, disagree, partially agree, partially disagree, you think I'm a horse's ass, I want to hear it. <laughs> Please let me know. And we will discuss it in the mailbag, uh, which is a decent enough segue to today's mailbag. Let's hop right on into it. We're going to start with Damien talking about The Trial of Magneto number 5. He says, I come away from this series thinking it would be easier to just say that from West Coast Avengers number 50 until yesterday, Wanda has been a scroll. How many times can they try to redeem her without it sticking? I imagine there's probably a sign-up in Marvel offices saying, it's been X amount of days since we last effed up Wanda Maximoff, and they keep having to reset it to zero. And yeah, that's kind of the main takeaway from, or one of the main takeaways from the Trial of Magneto series is that it's just another case of fixing a character over and over and over again that their only quality, the only trait that they have left is the fact that they're broken. You know, if you keep reminding someone that something needs to be fixed, then, you know, the subtext there is it's not even subtext, it's plain. It's saying that it's broken and it needs repair, it needs fixed. And that's the only Scarlet Witch story we get. And that sucks. <laughs> It really sucks. Uh, Damien continues. The worst thing about this series is that you can see glimmers of how good it could have been had it been an X-Factor story. Make it two or three issues, remove the Avengers and the Kaiju, and we could have had a Lorna-focused story where she's torn between her stepsister and her father while X-Factor investigates. Even Wanda's suicide-slash-spell would have been less annoying if it wasn't in an overhyped event series. And yeah, it's true. It's definitely true. The Kaiju here feels like... What the hell is even... What, why? Why are the kaiju here? Other than to bloat this thing into, you know, five issues. The Avengers here... You know, it's the it's subtraction by addition. We put these characters there. They We have them find out about the pit. And then they just, you know, have, like, nice aside saying, eh, we won't... We don't judge. We don't judge anybody for what they do. It feels wildly out of character and um, irresponsible. And had this been an X Factor story, I, I think it would have been. I think it would have been a fine story, because you know, like you said here, it wouldn't have been overhyped. There would have likely been far less editorial, you know, machinations behind the scenes. Probably because had it been an issue of X Factor, none of the editors would have bothered to read it in the first place. But um, instead, what we get is, well, for better or for worse, what we got. Uh, Damien continues. As you say, there's been confusion over how the resurrection protocols work and why getting Thunderbird back is such a big deal. I don't know if you're aware, but Jonathan Hickman was interviewed on the Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men podcast as kind of an exit interview, and he revealed that his biggest mistake in his time on the X-Men was one line of dialogue where a character other than Vulcan referenced Petra and Sway. His original intention was that those two should be figments of Vulcan's imagination and not actually resurrected because they couldn't be as they were pre-Shiar. Of course, my first thought is, what about the editors? <laughs> Surely their good question. Surely their primary purpose is to notice when the writers or artists are breaking their own story, particularly on something as pivotal as the setup to the resurrection protocols. I also wonder why I'm learning important story information on an interview and not in the book, where almost nothing happened for a couple of years. You do begin to believe that head of X is code for "Don't you dare edit me." 
And that is some good information. Um, no, I have not listened to uh, to that podcast. Um, thing of it is, putting out a show every day makes it hard for me to actually listen to podcasts. Um, X-Men podcast in particular, I, I don't listen to. Um, a weird aside, uh, <laughs> which is apropos of nothing, but... Um, I got an unsolicited DM on Twitter probably around the time of X-Lapsed 100-ish, I want to say. Anyway, this unsolicited message just said um, that they discovered the show, my show, and uh, warned that, quote, they're never going to let you in. To which I was, uh, uh, you know, obviously confused. I didn't know what you, what in the world this person was talking about, so I, I asked, and they elaborated that... Um, the, uh, the X-Men podcasting community was not going to let me in. And um, that's why I sometimes joke around about how uh, my existence isn't acknowledged. Uh, and I, I thought it was just some weirdo reaching out, but um, damned if they weren't right. I, I wish they weren't right. I'd love to be a part of the community. It's just, uh, I guess I'm just not a good fit. That said, um, even if I were listening to X-Men podcasts, I don't think I would ever listen to a uh, an interview with a current year creator because... I've tried listening to interviews with current year creators, and um, like I said, uh, I think a couple episodes ago, uh, interviews with current creators on podcasts are generally compliments disguised as questions. And uh, the hardest hitting questions are, "Hey, Mr. Hickman, how do you how do you manage to be so damn good looking and intelligent at the same time?" And I, I don't need to hear that because, to me at least, that adds absolutely nothing to any conversation. But uh, we did get some information here about uh, a mistake that he made, and I think I think what you said about the head of X being code for uneditable was uh, probably spot on. I'm sure that, well actually I can't even say that I'm sure that, uh, I would hope that if the editors did their job they would have caught this. Though honestly I have my doubts that any of them know what a Petra or a Sway actually is. Unfortunately, mistake or not, um, you play the ball where it lay. You come up, I mean, you're paid to be creative. You come up with a with a workaround. You make it work. Anyway, uh, Damien continues. If you allow yourself to forget Petra and Sway, this becomes a bigger deal. I can understand the use of Thunderbird as the iconic death pre-Shiar. In reality, it's characters like Northstar's daughter that bring more story potential, but I get them going for iconography over emotion for the first. And of course, Thunderbird is the, uh, you know, the iconic um, new X-Men death. Of course, Changeling died before the Shi'ar 2, and Changeling's been in the background of a few scenes in the Hawksbox era as well, so so who knows, right? Um, as far as uh, the story potential of Northstar's uh, daughter, I, I think that's that could be a lot of fun. That could be very interesting. Um, unfortunately, we don't have an X-Factor book anymore. Maybe there'll be another. Who knows? Uh, someone had mentioned that uh, I wonder if it's possible if uh, Quanon's daughter... I don't know if she was ever confirmed as being a mutant, but... I wonder if she can come back, even though you know we lost the data on her. I wonder if um, I wonder if she can make a return as well. Damien continues. Of course, if they can resurrect any character who would have been a mutant, does that also mean they can resurrect Peter and MJ's miscarriage from the Clone Saga? We know from the MC2 line that she would grow up to be a mutant. And uh, there's that's interesting, right? Um, I feel like that opens a box, though. <laughs> I feel like um, anybody could be introduced then. And, I mean, maybe that's what they're going for. Maybe we can get a Children of the Atom Volume 2 with uh, with Mayday Parker and uh, uh, the Silver Surfer's Earth-17 uh, granddaughter, and uh, we can get a whole bunch of newly minted alternate future mutant uh, children. I don't know. 
Uh, Damien continues, Talking to Thunderbird, have you collected the 80s launching classic X-Men series? I mentioned when we were discussing Giant Size Number 1 that I had read the, f- the version from Classic X-Men Number 1, which combines the pages where Xavier recruits all- the all-new X-Men by Wien Cockrum with a retelling of the rest of the story by Claremont and Bolton. Claremont adds quite a lot of time into the story between the pages of that first story and also between Krakoa and X-Men Number 94. This is the secret origin of the Gene-Wolverine romance and the Wolverine-Angel antagonism that Claremont started pushing in the mid-80s. All in all, you could argue that Claremont adds about a month between New X-Men, the new X-Men meeting and the death of Thunderbird. This allows Claremont to add lots more angst to the X-Men's reaction to his death, but it also supports Banshee's claim that Thunderbird is an old friend. They did spend a significant time living together in the same house. Your point is definitely well taken. I actually have those um, over in the closet right now waiting to be read eventually. Um, despite that, I, I have my doubts that anybody involved in the creation of... Um, the Trial of Magneto number 5 had any idea that those stories existed and were probably just playing up the, hey, they were both on the cover of Giant Size number 1 as a shorthand for, hey, these two were both on the cover of Giant Size, so therefore they're, you know, they're friends. Uh, Damien continues, It's amazing how much nonsense I can generate from reading a book I didn't really enjoy. I feel like I should mention I thought the art was very good, which is another positive in the Will Immortal X-Men Be Good analysis. Well, that's one major turning point ticked off. Now I'm just waiting for you to get to the end of Inferno. Well, wait no longer, because <laughs> we are out the other end here. I, uh, I am very, very uh, excited to hear your thoughts on Inferno, and um, I'd love to hear your, uh, your take on a post-mortem for, uh, for this run. So uh, thank you so much for writing in. Thank you for chatting up the Trial of Magneto, and I, like I said, I'm very, very excited to hear your thoughts on Inferno. Uh, next up, we got Evan talking about Hellions number 18. Evan says, It's a great send-off for a great book, both in terms of the issue and the show. The story was told and told well without any obvious truncation. I know we should be grateful to get 18 issues instead of 12 or even just 6, but what puts a little more salt in the wound is that this series, just like X-Factor before it, had a definite in-story reason to exist. I know that doesn't affect factors like sales numbers, but Hellions addressed an actual Krakoan problem. If we're giving everybody amnesty, what do we do with the folks who still don't fit in? What do we do with the problem causers? And even though this Hellions team was manipulated from both sides by Sinister and Emma, it worked. Grey Crow found a place and a purpose. Empath cared about people. Wild Child started getting his act together. Nanny and Orphan Maker, well, they were still pretty messed up, but Peter found friends and family and a support besides Nanny. I feel like this title could have kept going with a slightly retooled roster. Perhaps Grey Crow takes a, another former Marauder under his wing. But who knows if Wells could have or would have stayed on board. Better to end on a high note, I suppose. And I totally agree with everything you said. Um, I mean, it's no surprise to anybody listening, or anybody who's been listening, that Hellions has been my favorite book of this line. It's just been phenomenally well done. Um, bringing, bringing characters that, honestly, we shouldn't care about and making them just wonderfully deep and complex and uh and boy it's just such a such a great book um like evan said and it's something like we talked about when x factor was canned so few of the books that we get actually have a reason to exist uh of course that's discounting things like sales because hellions hellions would have sold a lot more had it been called (laughs) x-force we talked about that the other day it's uh being called hellions makes it look as though it matters less than a book with X in its title or a book with a legacy name attached to it. Hellions, I mean, 
if you are an X-Men fan, you know what the Hellions are, but I don't think anybody would uh, say that a Hellions title would be must-reading at any point in time. But this one, you know, kind of like kind of like X-Factor, kind of like Way of X, they actually were exploring different aspects of Krakoan life that were kind of getting glossed over in the other books, the flagship books of the line. So these were like the best kind of set dressing because they actually justified their existence by serving a unique purpose. And I think as we move into this new era, I'm probably done mourning the loss of them, and I'm more happy that we had them in the first place because they added a lot to the era, they added a lot to this show, and um, they added a lot of joy to the not always joyful reading experience. So I'm happy they existed. I'm glad that we've discussed them, and I look forward to discussing them more with anybody who might be interested. But thank you so much for writing in on Hellions, Evan. It's one of my very favorite subjects to discuss, and I know that you've read Inferno, so I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on uh, everything we just spent the better part of an hour talking about. But um, that's going to do it for the mailbag, and as my throat is in the process of closing up, that'll also do it for me. Now, if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, I would love to hear from you. Please feel free to do so. You can find me on, where am I? I'm on Twitter at Ace Comics, Instagram, 90sXmen, uh, email, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. The voicemail hotline is 623-396-JERK. Blog posts and show notes, Chris is on infiniteearths.com. The Facebook group is 90sXmen. Of course, the complete audio archives, chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere. You hear noise on the internet, and hey... If you want to help me prove that person who said that I'll never be accepted into the X-Men podcasting community wrong, maybe do your boy a solid and and share that link far and wide. Just let people know that this show exists, and maybe, just maybe, it's worth uh, a few minutes of someone's day. Uh, Finally, of course, we do have the Patreon. That is patreon.com slash xlapse. You get some behind-the-scenes stuff, some exclusive content, and a wonderful group of folks to chat with. But I think that's going to do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for deciding to spend a little bit of your day with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.